0: Welcome to NodeUp 87. I'm Tim Oxley, and today we're going to be talking about RAD modules. Today our show is sponsored by Angiehead, Codeship, and List Security. Today our excellent guests are Ari Stewart. Hello. Introduce yourself.
1: I am a framework untangler and in internationalization support at PayPal at the moment.
0: And Zeke, whose last name? I don't know how to say your last name, Zeke. How do you say that? Sicilianos. It's a okay. Greek word for Sicilian.
2: Yeah, I'm a designer. Uh, I worked at npm and Heroku, and mostly writing a lot of code and looking forward to the day when I actually get to be a designer again. Joshua, w- Wyatt's Switz. That's, It is Dutch. That's it means from the
3: woods. I am a post-framework front-end engineer. I very much like Unix, and I sometimes make
0: shitty jokes. I'm Tim, front-end, back-end, all sorts of things. Engineer, work at NodeSource, uh, run conference, run local meetups, etc. do internet things. The show will get started after a brief message from our sponsor, and yet.
2: Is your team using Happy or looking to start? Our sponsor, AndYet, has openings for Node architecture audits focused on the Happy framework. And yet has been helping enterprise companies ship Node to production since 2010. That's like 85,000 years ago in internet dog years. And yet, Heart's Happy very much. Not only is it a battle tested by Walmart and has gotten more and more powerful over time, the release of Happy 8 has also made it even easier for newcomers to adopt. With a staff of Node veterans, including two Happy Corps members, And Yet is a great option whether you're looking to start or improve your team's use of Happy. You can reach out to And Yet at A-N-D-Y-E-T dot com to schedule a node architecture
0: audit. Great. Thanks, Zeke. So what I wanted to do with this episode was just talk about modules which people think are good. In fact, I'm even using the wrong term. We should be calling them packages. Packages which everybody thinks are good and why they think they're good. And I wanted to get my excellent guests to select some of the packages that they think are good and tell us about why they think they're good packages. So, Zeke, going to make a start.
2: Sure. So, I had a hard time narrowing it down to just one or two modules that I think are really worth emphasizing, but one that stood out was Nets, N E T S, which was created by Max Ogden. And the module itself has very little functionality. It's it's really just an amalgam of two existing modules, Request, which I'm sure most everyone is familiar with, and XHR, which is a browser-side module that exposes the same API as request. So what NETS does is just allows you to use a common interface that will work both in node land, server land, and in the browser. And I was a big fan of Super Agent for a long time because it works in node in the browser it has a very nice sort of api for for making requests but the thing that distinguishes request and xhr from superagent that i think is really useful to me at least recently is that with request most people are accustomed to calling request.get or request.put request.post but you can actually just call request and pass in a giant options object containing the http method and the url and the headers and any other thing that you want to set So when you're working with a client that is generated from a schema, this is a very useful pattern for making HTTP requests. So if you're you're using code that isn't necessarily handwritten, it's a really, really useful pattern. Max Ogden has added a little bit of magic on top of it in that, so the default object you get back is actually a buffer instead of a string or whatever it would be by default. My other module that I picked is... Probably uh, on the boring side, and again, something that everyone has really heard of, but uh, over time I've come to realize that it's essential for every project that I work on, and that's Lodash. Lodash support, its feature set has continued to grow over time, and it is a very well-maintained module. Each of its individual functions are available as mini-modules on NPM, so if you want to pick and choose only the, the functions that you need from Lodash, you have that option, and they work in the browser. Most recently, In Lodash 3.7, there is a feature called get and set, which allows you to define arbitrarily deep keys within an object. So you can say set object foo.bar.baz and give it a value. And whether or not foo or bar were present in the object structure, they will be created. And get works in a very similar way. There are a bunch of modules already that do this, but... Because I'm using Lodash in so many projects already, it's a, it's an
0: obvious choice. Just briefly back onto Nets, Like that's, a, that's actually something I've been looking for. I don't know, somehow didn't manage to find it, and I guess we'll talk about the, the reasons why I didn't find it later on. If I remember rightly, there was an issue with browserifying the request module. Like It, it wouldn't browserify correctly, something to do with the MIME module or something like that. Package. Use the word package. Do you actually know how they managed to get request working in the browser? Is it actually request or is it sort of a fork of request or did they, did they resolve that issue? And what does Nets actually do over the top of, of request other than just, I guess, I guess it provides the same API but using XHR? Or does it actually use request in the browser or is that is it just the request API over XHR?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's actually a package called XHR.
0: That's Raynos's, yeah.
2: Yeah, by Raynos, And the only thing that it does is in package.json, there is a browser key supported by Browserify, and it just specifies, I think literally the value is, the the key is request, and Mm -hmm. the value is XHR. So what Um, it means mm -hmm. is when Browserify is, is transpiling this thing or bundling it, when it comes across a request, it should use XHR instead. And I don't know the origins of, of XHR, but my assumption is that Reynos wrote it intentionally as a, a browser-facing module that works just like request. That's speculation, but I know work has been done to keep its API in sync with the way that request works.
0: I came across something just the other day talking about future-facing for, for doing the same thing but using the fetch API. So the new the new XHR API so is the Fetch API It's probably only available in Chrome and like you know very modern browsers. You can get a similar module called I'll find out what it is and I'll put it in the show notes. But it allows you to get the same API in Node using you, know, you just type you know, fetch equals require fetch and then same sort of thing. Now lodash, can you maybe explain? for those who are not enlightened, what the difference between Lodash and Underscore is, or at least as far as you're concerned?
2: That is a very political topic and one that I'm not necessarily comfortable getting into, or nor one that I feel informed enough to really elaborate on. My understanding is that Lodash at its inception was an attempt to improve upon some of Underscore's performance problems. So initially it was an underscore-compatible API that was more performant. But over time, I think it's kind of evolved into something different, which the, the APIs, there are still backwards-compatible underscore options, but new features continue to be added to Lodash all the time.
0: Another big uh, thing I noticed is Lodash is SEMVA-compatible, um, yes. while underscore is purposely not does not follow SEMBA, and otherwise, yes, all the Lodash stuff is available. One of the big complaints that people have about, I'm one of these people who complain about tools like underscore and Lodash, where it's kind of like a kitchen sink of, you know, I'll often find I'll be using some tool, some, some package, and they've pulled in Lodash, and they only use one of the functions, and that function is like for each or something, which is already built into the browser, and that kind of annoys me, but one of the neat things about Lodash it splitting all of their utility things up into individual packages is that it allows you to just pull down the pieces that you need rather than the whole Lodash kitchen sink it's kind of gets around that whole the argument against it and the the, the nice the nice thing about it one of the one of the downsides of using like one package per function or one package per you know, because there are tools which do almost all the things in Lodash, but they're just standalone tools. One of the downsides of using things like that is that they're damn hard to find. And the nice thing about Lodash and, you know, tools like that is that they put them all in one place. And the fact that all the packages are now published separately means that you don't have the kitchen sink problem and they're all in one place. That's so sort of like all of the benefits and none of the downsides. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm saying this trying to trying to convince myself to use lodash just because it's been sort of drummed into me that you can't use lodash or underscore because those are tools for tools for beginners who don't know how to use JavaScript, but it, which isn't true. It's just like there's sort of a little bit of a stigma attached to them.
2: Yeah, I feel like lodash is actually filling in a lot of the blanks in JavaScript. I don't want to talk too much about Ruby, but one of my favorite things about Ruby is the enumerable module which gives you a lot of different ways for interacting with collections or arrays and JavaScript only has a handful of those out of the box there's for each and map and filter and maybe more depending on the environment but lodash really kind of covers all of those missing things for, for interacting with arrays performing operations on arrays
0: don't want to dwell here too long, but if you look at the, any any of the graphs of NPM's yeah, most popular packages, lodash and async JS are up there as you know the like massive compared to pretty much any of their other competitors. And I have found it I'm not going to say it's necessarily good or bad, but it, it's interesting that these two things are solving like I guess lodash fills in yeah uh, a lot of the missing standard library for JavaScript and async, you know, provides a lot of the async operations that we, like the, I guess the control flow standard library that we, we're missing. It doesn't seem that many of the new features going into JavaScript are particularly influenced by either of these two libraries, which I found, I guess, is surprising, but perhaps the people who are designing this have a lot more foresight than than I do and they've got sort of a, a much grander vision. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe these tools are only in existence just to, you know, just patch the problems that we have in today's JavaScript. Moving
1: forward, Aria, what packages would you like to talk about? So I wanted to talk about Electron and Nojip3, which they kind of seem unrelated. I mean Electron is the Atom Shell renamed now. And it is a binding of WebKit and Node together in a single process, in a single environment. So we can, you can know, write apps like Atom itself, and a lot of other apps are starting to use it. The Moose Collective has built the Friends chat tool. This is just new Visual Editor, isn't there, by Microsoft or something? Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, new Microsoft Visual Studio Code is built using Atom Shell, or now Electron. And so we're starting to see a lot of desktop applications built using the WebKit as a basis. But with that comes a use of all this. There is now a gigantic binary download that is not part of Node. And so now we are starting to have a new kind of binary dependency here, the actual Atom shell itself. And we're starting to need to fetch modules that are compatible with this. And alongside that, then we have a lot of trouble compiling modules on Windows. Windows users don't often have compilers handy. The the installation instructions for Node on a Mac or Linux is install Node, and the installation instructions on Windows are install Node and open SSL and Python and a handful of other tools. And then maybe you'll get a compiler that works, but you'll probably have to set a half dozen options, and that's going to be quite a lot of work. So with that, people are starting to store binaries on S3, and one of the tools they use to fetch those is NodeGIP Pre, which looks up the runtime that you're using, and if it's one of the standard ones that it's got a module compiled for, it will download the pre-compiled module and use that rather than having to run it through the compiler, which means that we can now ship binary support for users who don't have the compiler handy, and for some of the bigger projects shortens the install time dramatically.
0: Right, I remember there's, there's a very long thread on the npm issue queue about this, or about something where npm talking about getting npm to pull down pre-compiled binaries instead of pulling down stuff and building it. Do you know if there's any way of maybe getting this as like first class support in NPM or, or if there's any discussion about that or is that even a good idea or? Uh,
1: my first thought is that it may not be a good idea. The NPM registry actually supports, you can actually tuck binaries in there in a matter of course. I did this as a hack with the IOJS bin and the node bin packages. If you install those locally in a project, it'll actually give you a copy of Node or IOJS to run, just installed in the normal bin directory that is inside each module when you install things. I think so we could actually use the NPM infrastructure for distributing binaries, but I'm not sure that we need NPM itself to support the binary modules. I think we might actually have a lot more flexibility if we use tools like NodeGIP pre and actually take care of it ourselves. That way we don't get into these circular things of, like right now there's a bug in no JIP where it doesn't actually work on IOJS or hasn't until recently, I'm not sure if that's been fixed. In so doing, since NPM depends on a specific version of that, those assumptions are baked in and kind of hard to alter and working Mm. around that's kind of difficult. So having it external gives us a lot more flexibility and perhaps a lot more future-proof than having it built into NPM.
0: If I'm not building a text editor, and there's probably a very small number of people who are building a text editor, what can I do with Electron that's interesting?
1: there's not a lot that is specific to Electron but we still have a lot of use for desktop applications there are networking things you can do with a desktop application that you can't on the web, you have unrestricted access to sockets and to all kinds of low level network protocols so we can actually start building these things but using the familiar WebKit tools to build user interfaces
0: right, uh, so I think we're at
1: the very tip of that
0: I, I was confused, so Electron's not Atom, it's not the editor it's just It's like Node, oh, NWJS, Node Correct. WebKit. it's a competitor so, yeah.
1: to NW. It is the old Atom shell, which is actually the binding ah. to Node and WebKit, extracted from Atom and shipped as a tool on its own right.
0: I think there's the, one of the guys who worked on Node WebKit was one of the guys who built Electron. Yeah, there was controversy there.
1: Yeah, it, it's a different division of responsibilities in the way that the environments are set up. NW keeps the... Client and server side a little bit more separate, whereas Adam says, nope, we're, this is all one process. We're going to give you all of the tools all in one scope.
0: Joshua, what would you like to talk about? I would like to
3: make an honorable mention for one of the most interesting modules out there, which is accidentally written by you. It's called ah. Link Local. <laughs> and there are, on NPM, there are a lot of modules, a lot of really good streams modules, Little components that make your life easier. But there are very few modules that change the way you program. I think Node WebKit and, in extent, Electron change very much what is possible to do. But Link Local, it changes the way you architecture your app. And that is something I've never experienced before. Link Local, what it does, it makes use of NPM's local packages, I guess it's called now. You can specify a file as being a dependency, and whenever you run npm install, it will install that file. There's one caveat with that, and that is that files are copied over, and they don't have a link. So you install them once, and they're static. So what link local does, instead it creates a symlink for you. So you can have local files, symlinked in your node modules, and just require them in from wherever if you combine it with npm scopes, you can say like add project name slash my package and require it from anywhere. And this enables you to do amazing things with a file structure, being able to like create your your whole application without any levels, without any, any hidden files. It's been one of the best experiences, best changes in programming for me in the last year, I guess. So if you're building an application and you're not using Link Local, I very much
0: suggest you try it out. Also, be yeah. the way that I can fill. <laughs> the problem that I was trying to solve with Link Local is that when you're developing an application, the two main ways to divide your code up are files and then packages. Now, packages are really nice. If you have like sub-packages, that's a really good way of yeah, dividing the work up into, you know, you can have a package have its own tests, you can have all of its own dependencies, I have a cat here making noise. Be quiet. You know, we, we tried working with packages for a while. We had our own private registry. But the private registry didn't turn out. So it, it turns out that there's a, an awful lot of overhead in managing dependencies, especially if, you have, if that dependency is shared by a lot of other dependencies. I would come across a, a situation where if you've got a whole bunch of related packages and you make a change to one of them, Then now you need to go and make sure that first you've got to publish it, bump the version, all that kind of stuff, and then then you've got to make sure that everything that depends on that has its version bumped, or at least you've run npm install again. Because I'd often come across a situation where I'd be wondering why the hell is this broken and then discovering that well it was you know a package in a package was depending on the wrong version of this thing i didn't update it or something something happened and it was you know very irritating and so having sim links in there just make sure that when you update with link local you end up with packages which are sim linked and yeah when when you update File, obviously it just gets updated everywhere because it's a symlink. When you go to deploy, you wouldn't use link local, it would just deploy as usual, so you end up with 10 copies of it or a DGP or just whatever NPM wants to do with it normally. This would just be like a it's just a dev dependency thing. Anyway, point is is that it provides a little bit more structure than what you get with just files and a hell of a lot less overhead than you get with having breaking your stuff up into small little packages well, that you publish into a registry. It changed the way I worked as well. So there's also um, one
3: added benefit to it and that is when refactoring and you want to move files around, you're not stuck with a file structure with your dot dot slash dot dot slash depending on everything. It's you're you're
0: it's like a sole problem now.
1: Have you tried that with the NPM multi stage branch?
0: I tried it a few weeks ago and I had some problems. So I'm not sure whether it'll it'll work yet.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, as in, you're talking about have I tried link local or have I tried local modules?
1: Link local, particularly. Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how, how that's going to work yet. We'll see.
1: Yeah, that's the branch I've been keeping an eye on.
0: Yeah, it's quite exciting. I think that this this will potentially change everything. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it did. Joshua, anything else you wanted to say about any packages?
3: Oh, no, not really. Lately, I've been compiling a huge list of useful modules because I've noticed that there are like so many and I just wanted to keep a list. So I've I've recently found a bazillion streams modules, mostly written by Max and Mathintosh. <laughs> Too many to to mention right now.
0: Have you got a list of them somewhere? Yeah, I could share it like maybe in the notes or something. Yeah, share it in the show notes. I guess that's another point. Um, We'll we'll get to that, actually. Thanks, guys. Let's move to the next section after our next sponsor, CodeShip.
1: CodeShip is a free, hosted, continuous delivery service focused on simplicity and usability. Set up continuous integration in a few easy steps and automatically deploy when all of your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub, Bitbucket, and it lets you deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, and Modulus. Their new feature, Parallel CI, lets you run your tests in parallel. Configure your project to use up to 10 parallel pipelines to gain as much as 10x speed increase for your test suite. CodeShip makes continuous delivery so simple, setup only takes a minute. CodeShip is totally free for open source products, or if you sign up now, you can get 100 builds a month and 5 private projects for free. This should allow startups, freelancers, and small teams to get easily started with continuous delivery. For anyone that needs more builds and projects, you can use the discount code NOTEUP to get 20% off of any plan for 3 months when signing up for a paid subscription. Head over to Codeship.com slash NodeUp to get started, and be sure to follow them on Twitter at Codeship.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Codeship. Thanks, Aria. What I wanted to talk about now is module discovery. It's the one of the bigger problems that people have when they first get to Node, and it's, it's still a problem for people who experience with Node. I hadn't heard of a, a lot of the things which at least two of the packages that you guys talked about. So. Oh, module discovery, package discovery. Let's call cool, it package discovery. How do you guys, guys and girls, how do you, how do you find your packages on the internet? What do you, what do you guys use?
2: So I can go first here. Having worked at npm, I'll just head things off a little bit. So npm's search, npmjs.com search is not very good, and no one is denying that. It is definitely on the roadmap for this year to be dramatically improved. There's a tag on the website, NPM slash new dub dub, dub. There is a search label that is applied to issues related to search, so there are a handful. My tendency has been to encourage people who are complaining about NPM search to, to leave feedback there, and there are a few issues in particular that are pretty extensive and cover a lot of people's problems with site search. So personally, the way I go about finding modules, when I am actually searching for something specific, I actually use Google. So I do site colon npmjs.com slash package space search terms. And that usually does pretty well for me, gives pretty good results in general. I usually have to do a few searches and try several of the modules or dig into the code before I know which one is good but more for like serendipitous discovery this is shameless self promotion but i have created a browser extension called npm hub and what it does is whenever you're on a github page with a file listing containing a package.json it makes a request to a service that hits the registry and fetches all of the package names and descriptions and displays them below the readme so whenever i'm looking at a uh, an NPM project, I can see what it's using and link directly to its dependencies.
0: That sounds like a really good tool, actually, because one way I find packages is through, I literally spend a lot of time just trawling through the dependencies of my dependencies and just you know, finding, finding cool stuff that way. You know, having that stuff just pop up for me automatically in the GitHub readme, I think that sounds like a really good tool. Another tool which... I know, so I mean the site search, npmjs.com site search has definitely got a lot better in the last year, like since the new site came out. I mean I actually use the, the the website search now, but usually when I can't find something on npmjs.com, I'll usually go to npmsearch.com, which is a thing made by Tempa, and it just, it's, I'm pretty sure, actually in fact I think that that was where the npmjs search came from anyway I think that's a pretty good tool for finding stuff in combination with the two other methods I sort of use like i usually start on the site search just because it looks pretty then I'll move to NPM search and then I'll move to Google which I probably should have just started with Google but, oh and there was another tool recently which actually I guess works off the Google thing I'll put the link in the show notes but it was a tool which uses Google's Pagerank to sort the results so that's kind of kind of neat.
2: So some clarification on that, it's, a, it's not actually using Google's PageRank numbers, like this URL has PageRank 5. It's actually using the PageRank algorithm, right. which is a way of scoring things based on the number of dependencies they have. I don't know too much about the details, but it is using the algorithm and not data from Google.
0: Anybody else got any other suggestions?
1: I actually am one of the few people who still uses the command line search. It's slow because it has to load the whole package index, but uh, it's one of the ones that actually lets you do an AND query, so limiting things to just modules that match two or more search terms, definitely. And it's the only one that gives you closure over the search space. It's not an open-ended list like on Google, so I've had really good luck with that. That's the reason why
0: I use npmsearch.com, is because it allows you to have AND in the query. One of the the most frustrating part about the npmjs website i'm sure it'll be fixed it's nobody's fault but the more terms that you add to it that's, the more refined you make your query the more scattered your the more results you get that are unrelated so it sort of goes the opposite direction to the, what you want it seems to anyway
1: exactly um, that's exactly the problem but i use that and then my general workflow is to run npm home on every package that looks vaguely interesting so i will pop open github or npmjs links for two dozen packages and just evaluate them from there. I tend to do a pretty breadth first search when I'm looking for something.
2: So one other thing of note for serendipitous discovery is the changelog nightly. It used to be a project by Ilya Grigorik of Google called the GitHub archive. GitHub publishes activity in some big data queryable format and for a long time There was a nightly email, a daily email available from githubarchive.org. That is now available at, I believe it's the changelog.com slash nightly. And there are tons of useful JavaScript things showing
1: up there every single day. I could also plug uh, DailyJS and the JavaScript Weekly. Both of those tend to have some excellent, a little more curated links.
0: Joshua, how do you find modules, packages? Might be, I have like two things
3: I do. The serendipitous discovery. And the very dedicated, oh, my God, I need a module. For I need a module, it's definitely Google. I find it to be very reliable. And the other part is follow everyone you can on GitHub and keep tabs on your GitHub timeline because interesting things will show up. I have like 5,600 packages starred at this point, which might be a lot but it gives you a pretty good overview of the ecosystem by like, you see something, you star it. And when you see it again, you'll be like, oh yeah, I've already seen it because I've started. And when you have to do like a search, you can just go to github.com slash stars and like search through your stars and you'll find something.
0: Yeah, I I do that as well. I actually, sometimes I have trouble with remembering package names, especially ones that have like, you know, weird, weird package names and uh, github stars is a good way for me to like catalog, catalog that. I agree with that. Definitely good. I want to plug Echo.js. Echo.js, it's, I guess it's like Hacker News, but specifically for JavaScript. There's not many comments, so that's probably why I think that it's good quality. But yeah, there, there seems to be a reasonable amount of decent links. It's not specifically front-end focused or back-end focused. You don't get too much. There's there's a little bit of frameworkish sort of stuff that comes through there, but there's still a good number of just you know raw packages also surfacing, so Echo.js isn't too bad. Our next sponsor is Lyft Security. Lyft Security. RequireSafe is Lyft Security's latest
3: offering to the node security world. If you haven't heard, Lyft Security created the node security project to audit all of the modules in NPM. The node community has since grown exponentially to where the NPM registry contains roughly 124,000 modules today. The problem RequireSafe aims to solve whose code are you running in production? To clarify that, RequireSafe offers dedicated resources looking after third-party code for subscribers, early warning and recommendations for remediation for when an issue is identified, documentation for developers on common gotchas when using certain modules, integration with your deployment and CI tools. As sensitive vulnerabilities become resolved in public, this info will be made available to the community at large. RequireSafe is currently in beta. To check it out, visit RequireSafe.com. If you're interested in hearing more about Lyft Security's auditing services or want to bring a security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft team at LyftSecurity.io
0: or at Security on Twitter. Thanks, Lyft Security. Thanks, Joshua. Let's talk about how do we maintain the health of our module community. And I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about was the proliferation of forks or almost exactly the same package being built. And I guess mainly because people couldn't find it, couldn't find the, the alternative. Is having 10 packages to do the same thing a good thing? And you know, is, is it a problem? What causes it? Anybody got any ideas? I think very much taste. Like <laughs> some
3: people like the new interface. Some people like to use... Uh, factory. Some people love classes, other people think state is a bad thing. So everyone gets to do like one thing, but in their very special way. And yeah, you know, why not?
0: Sometimes I'll do this actually, like I'll go and build a, I'll build a replacement to something just because I didn't like its API, but it seems like a, who do I think I am like, and you know, (laughs) why does this, why does this matter? One thing that bothers me is yeah, when something should be a stream but it's not a stream. It's like an event emitter that happens to emit data and end events, but it's not a stream. So sometimes I'll, I'll I mean, I'll rebuild things just because yeah, I think oh, the, the author sucked or well, the author didn't suck. The the package could be better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one thing I've been trying to do recently is you know not do that just because and uh, having so many things doing the same thing. Yeah, it's not. My, my opinion is that it's not great. But yeah, is there something that we can do to bring people together more. So I have a few thoughts on the matter.
2: I think improving search on the NPM site would definitely help this. If you could find the module that you wanted, then you don't have to write one. This has bitten me several times. I'm not the type to find a module that is written the wrong way and rewrite it. I'm more the type to not be able to find the one that does what I want, write it, and then find the exact same thing already exists. A week later. In fact, this happened to me yesterday. I created a module called GitHub Issue Template. And it's a CLI that allows you to pass in a repo name, an issue title, and a path to a file that will be the body of the issue. And all it does is generate a URL and open that URL for you in your browser with an issue pre-filled. And this is a practice that the Babel.js team is using to collect users of Babel and their logos and their website addresses and such. So they just send a link that's a link to an issue that has all of the, it's like a template basically. I kind of thought that this was such a specific thing that there wouldn't be a module for it. So I wrote it and then moments later on Twitter, someone said, Hey, I already wrote that. And had I known, I definitely would have used it. So the search would definitely help, but also just taking a moment to ponder whether, such a thing may already exist. Anybody the thoughts?
1: I'm inclined to not think it's terribly much of a problem. I think what we have is a long-tail distribution. It's kind of inherent in an ecosystem the size with the sometimes strong, sometimes weak connections between the people. So sometimes we have a, anything solved by a prominent community member is likely to get picked up and used and not be as duplicated. But something by a less known member or a, a slightly badly named package, yeah, you'll end up with a lot of duplication. But I don't think it's all that problematic. As we have security vulnerabilities, that may be a place where that plays out differently. But otherwise, I think a little more diversity is just more richness in the ecosystem. And as the community ages, we'll start being able to see which things are really active better. A lot of the problems are just because things are new.
0: My, my problem with it is that I see a lot of, you know, sometimes you'll find five things that do something and but none of them are good. Or, you know, so, you know, so what was I doing? I was doing something recently. I ended up having to, use like, I tried three different libraries and they are all broken in, you know, three different ways. And I guess that's the kind of, that's where I sort of feel like a little bit more, if if people were more unified behind, all uh, right, let's build one module that, that, one package that does stuff well, there would be more, well, I guess more people looking at it so more people find the bugs before you find the bugs. I guess that's that's really the, the thing. Another thing which is happening I've noticed is Packages just end up disappearing, like the package author moves on. How do we deal with abandoned packages what, what, what's the what's the protocol
3: I, I guess the subtitle for this could be or how to deal with the bus factor yeah for <laughs> 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 well, for those that don't know what the bus
2: factor is is if someone gets run over by a bus, what happens? having done uh, a lot of customer support at npm, one of the most common customer requests is hey I want this package because it has a really cool name and it's the name of that's the name that I want to use and this person created this package three years ago and it doesn't even have a readme and they're obviously not maintaining it. So we have pretty clear policy for that. Roughly the outline is get a hold of that person, the author of the module in question, CC support at npmjs.com. Politely tell them that you want to use the module. Being polite is really the most important thing, and has it's very effective. Often this is done for, done by people who want to take over a package, but we have a number of users who just use this mechanism for reporting packages that should be unpublished because they don't work or they don't do anything useful. So a good practice would be if you come up, come across a package that is clearly dead or useless or broken, First of all, you could file a GitHub issue, but if it seems like it's really completely dead and beyond hope, then email the owner and cc NPM, uh, supported npmjs.com, and it will go into a queue and it will be handled diplomatically.
0: Ideally, we don't end up with abandoned packages. So what can maintainers do to ensure that you know, they're, they're a responsible maintainer and that packages don't end up abandoned?
1: Open open source. Giving somebody when they make a contribution request access to your source is very powerful. It it feels like yielding a lot of control, but the results are really surprisingly good.
0: Yep, yeah, I can plus one that so you can actually there's a website for openopensource.org, you can go there and it's a manifesto which you can subscribe to. The idea is that once something is open open source, yeah, anytime somebody Anytime somebody does any significant contribution to your package, they then become a maintainer and it has this amazing effect of getting people to, to to step up to the plate and they become, you know, they start, manage, given all this new responsibility, they start man- managing issues for you and they start fixing things. Yeah, it's a, it, I've seen it. Work really well on a few packages, and that, that that's like an initiative by Rod Vag uh, originally with the the Level Level DB community. So subscribe to that if you can. Open open source. There,
3: there's like one remark for this though. Like open open source is great, and it's amazing that it's out there. But it only works for I think larger things. Like every now and then, someone out there finds a module you wrote two years ago and forgot about, and they like creep up with a bunch of issues, and you're like, oh god. <laughs> Why, why did you find this? <laughs> and you're not necessarily completely trust, trusting of their capabilities, and like, handing off control doesn't feel right, and you don't really want to solve it, and it's like this really hard position where you, you're in, I think. And like the best thing would be if people never found the modules, but you wrote them, so
0: <laughs> I, yeah,
1: I, I, I don't, I'm not sure what to do with that. <laughs> I don't think there's a downside to passing the torch at that point. If you don't want it, let it go.
0: Well, I mean, there's there's a two-phase thing to that. There's one which is releasing GitHub control, and then the second one which is releasing publishing control. You can add them as a contributor on GitHub and, I guess, see what they do. And if it looks like it's not going to work out, I guess you can, you know, you don't give them publish rights. So you never have to publish that code, I guess.
3: I guess that makes sense. At least you can, like, try it out. But, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, it's it's hard. Also, managing issues can be very hard once you, like, reach a certain critical mass of, of open source repos.
0: Oh, now there's a good one. I have so many problems with my packages, which I don't even notice often because notifications for my packages are uh, merged into my notifications tab on GitHub with the notifications for NPM, for example. So I end up with, you know, 600 issues created for NPM and you know two created for mine but I just completely ignore the notifications tab just because it's full of you know stuff which isn't necessarily related to me. I mainly watch stuff just so that I get like the like a feed of stuff happening in my forums tab in in Gmail just so I can sort of watch what's going on on packages and occasionally I'll chime in on, on something but this completely clogs up my notification, notifications tab on GitHub. Does anybody have any good... I was looking for a tool the other day, just, just like something which specifically notifies me about my own packages.
1: I have a webhook feeding into Slack and it actually works really well for that.
0: Oh, good idea. But you have to set that up for all of your packages though, right?
1: No, you can do an organization or user level webhook. Ooh. Yeah, and it will notify on any package in there.
0: You'll link that in the show notes. That's the half of being a good maintainer. How can you be a good contributor? Any best practices for that? I guess being polite would be the first one.
3: I think being, being polite is
0: definitely <laughs> the, the best thing to do.
3: Don't ever demand something. Always ask if someone would like to add something. And the, the second one is when you create a pull request, make sure it adds one thing only. Don't, don't go and add semicolons to everything because that just makes you a less likable person.
0: Because obviously Just adding yeah. semicolons generally makes you a less likable person. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, why
0: some, are we putting them in there? Why? Anyway.
1: Something you can do is focus on saying what you're trying to achieve and what you've done to do it and give a complete but minimal example. Those three things go so far. Almost every Kraken project issue that we have filed is missing one of those things don't know what the user is actually trying to accomplish. They just give us an error message that they're encountering, or they give us an error message, but not actually the configuration that led to it. So it's a shot in the dark guessing what's wrong, because quite often it's a documentation issue not, or an understanding issue not actually in. It's, it's giving them an error message for a good reason, but without the context, it's hard to tell whether it's a bug or a, something else. And then just a minimal reproducer, if you can, Goes so far when something actually is a bug, because so many people will give a chopped up example cut out of their live application, but it doesn't work. There's no way to actually reproduce given the information that they give. Whereas just a little bit more effort given into a actual reproducer, it it smooths the process by hours or days.
0: Something I found is by often by producing a minimal ex- like example of what the problem is, I will either discover that. Ooh, it was my problem. Or two, I'll understand exactly where the problem is. So I'll be able to move from submitting an issue to submitting a pull request, which which actually solves it. So that's another nice thing. You you gain a lot more understanding about when you try to isolate the problem. Although sometimes isolating the problem is, that's half of the problem. That is the problem. You don't know where the issue is. You don't know why it's happening. And sometimes you just, maybe it's something that the maintainer will just know like, oh, I've seen this before, this is how you'll fix it. Uh, something which I, I've seen some maintainers get a bit angry when you submit something and you, you can't reproduce it, but you, know, you would, I guess, just try and prompt the maintainer, hey, have you seen this before? I guess maintainers also, be polite.
1: Yeah, figure out whether you're punting the ball into the maintainer's court or whether you are keeping the responsibility yourself. Something I I've
3: not seen quite enough is uh, people posting post-mortems. So whenever something goes wrong in, at your side and suddenly it's resolved, but you're not sure why, I think it's a nice courtesy thing to do is to post like, this is what happened. This is what we did. This is the result. And if someone's like, oh shit, something's broken, they can like maybe find the thing you posted or the author can be like, hey, apparently something is up here. It like communicates more the like user feedback.
1: Um, yeah, and that can be a great feed into documentation. Lack of that is quite often why documentation is terrible. Yeah, speaking so, of
2: documentation, that's, that's something that I find is often lacking from pull requests is there's a feature that's implemented and maybe there's a test, but often there's a change to the way you actually use the library and that should be reflected in the readme. Yep. Yeah, Agreed. given the
1: choice of an update to the test or an update to the readme, I would take the readme. Really? Absolutely. Huh, Nice. Interesting
0: Um, post really though.
1: Yes, but I can write a test. It's quite often easy to ignore (laughs) the documentation and let it never happen.
0: Ah yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah.
2: Another thing we run into a lot on the NPM website is people submitting very large pull requests without first checking to see whether it's something we're actually interested in merging or whether it's the approach that we want to take to solving that particular problem. And it is really hard to tell people, hey, guess what? you did all this work and we can't merge this because it's not what we want. So as a contributor, it's worth just start just filing an issue or a very lightweight pull request and saying, is this worth pursuing? Is it worth my time? Like a
3: documentation pull request might be a good one to start. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right, so let's just, I guess, quickly go over some you know common bad practices. So for, for when you're authoring something, what are, what are some of the worst things that you see?
2: people are afraid of major version numbers. So if you change something about the way your your API works and it's major, then bump the version number. So I think people have this sort of historical view of what 1.0 means or what 2.0 means as being like, you know, Lotus Notes 3.0 or some kind of major product release, but it's actually more about being able to roll something out and have your users still able to use older versions of your code. So... Don't be afraid to take things 1.0. Like next time you publish that modules go 1.0. Like if you change it, if you change the the major functionality. NPM defaults to 1.0
3: now, right? If you create a module?
2: Yep. It does. It does. Nice. Yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, it, into, yeah. And with tools like Git cherry pick, if your module is small, it's not a problem to maintain several majors. Unless you've actually made a real, like breaking change in what the module means. It's pretty easy to maintain two forks until interest in one dies down. People automatically want to try to go to the latest, so they will die out on their own. But supporting one, two, three, four back is often not a problem. That's
0: something I'd like to see on the NPM website, which is something which you can't do. We we can't get information without NPM support, is information about what versions of tools people are using. That would be very nice to have on the website. So you you could get a graph of, all right, well, I've released two new major versions, but nobody's moving off You know, version 1.0. What have I done wrong? That would be yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm, plus one.
1: Things I see wrong all the time, star depths, depending on something star that actually is an invitation to break your package.
3: Even when pulling in a polyfill because
1: specifications change and they break everything. Absolutely. Especially then. That's core foundational stuff.
0: So I guess the problem there is just you know packages that either – pull in dependencies and don't specify Semver and the other issue is packages which also don't follow Semver.
3: I had an interesting issue I think yesterday or maybe today uh, about a Polyfill and they weren't following Semver and the reasoning for the author behind that was because they were following the specification they could like update the versions. Anyway, they like changed stuff kind of arbitrarily, and when people don't follow Semver, it's, for, for me at least, it's very hard to figure out like what changed. Can I use this code? Can I upgrade safely or not? I believe Dominic Tarr wrote an excellent piece about this called sentimentalversioning.org, I believe, mm-hmm. where he outlines some alternative forms of versioning in a very poetic way. Yeah, it's definitely worth a laugh read. <laughs> But well, what do you guys think about Semver in general?
1: I love it, but people have to actually do it. It doesn't communicate as much information as people think it does, so it's actually pretty easy to follow. Did you I was going it? to say,
0: it's really hard to follow.
1: Eh, only <laughs> if your modules are big and uh, you don't understand how people are using it. I
0: guess I guess it's just determining what, what actually constitutes a breaking change. It's very easy to publish something which includes... A breaking change for somebody, which wouldn't you wouldn't consider a breaking change. For example, you know, maybe uh, I can't think of a good example, but there's lots of subtle ways that you can you can screw things up for people.
1: Oh yeah, um, accepting only false in one case and expecting any falsy value in another. Little things like that can be breaking changes. I think if anybody reports it, my reaction is to revert, publish a new a new patch say sorry, and bump the major and publish the intended change. But I'd consider that, oops, that was a bug. It's intended to stay compatible. So if you noticed, that's on me. Good call, good call,
0: yeah. Yeah, if it breaks for somebody, you can't argue that it wasn't breaking because like by definition, it was. Exactly,
1: Uh, (laughs) so I say that's on me.
0: Yeah, sure, good good call. You guys Um, mentioned
1: something
3: about like Semver is hard for larger modules that might be true. What, what do you guys think about Semver for applications or like something like a kernel? Does Semver still make sense?
1: I think the kernel and node itself are very much in the same situation. It is a dependency that everything depends on. So changing the major on that means that you're breaking everything, or at least have the good chance of breaking everything so it is to not to be taken lightly. But something like an application, things don't depend on it. Not in that way. So if there is no interfaces at a programmatic level. You're not breaking things, so versioning means something completely different in an application. Even for an API. Now, an API is an interface. Oh, so that's, right. a, that's something that I think is subject to versioning.
0: Yeah, SEMBA is only relevant for well, when something is consuming you. Uh, your API. Yeah. So I guess that's that's where most of most of the apps that I'm working on just live at 1.0 forever. They never bum it's just 1.0 whatever and
3: because the reason that I'm asking this is that for example CoreOS they use a daily versioning schema like everyday adds a version and I was like well that's an interesting choice and they're very strong about it
1: yeah at that point I don't think it conveys any useful information except that it's monotonically increasing
0: fair yeah,
1: yeah I think they've just said that our versions are meaningless <laughs>
0: There's plenty of discussion about this kind of stuff on on the web, so we could probably wrap this up. Time to plug something. Aria, what do you want to plug?
1: Two things. The open-sourcing mental illness. There was a note-up covering mental health before, but OSMI is doing a fundraiser for their 2015. Ed Finkler's giving talks and getting involved here and is funding some of his travels and talks at conferences. So chip in if you can. It would be nice to see him out on the circuit more and talking to all of us and keeping us healthy. And the other thing I'd like to plug is go check out NPM's multi-stage branch. It is a continuously moving target. A don't base any work on it, but that is the core of what's becoming NPM 3. And if it's going to break everything, now is the time to go and yell about it. It is some big changes to NPM coming, but adding a lot of rigor to the installation process that was not there before. Good call. Zeke?
2: Today, my shameless plug will be myself. As of very recently, I am available for hire. So if you have interesting projects, node projects, web design stuff, and you need some help, I'm Zeke on Twitter and Zeke on GitHub. That's Z-E-K-E. Give me a shout. Thanks. Great plug. Joshua. (laughs) Well,
3: first off, I want to give out a shout-out to the DAT team. Mathintosh, max and the rest of the game for doing an amazing job on modules those guys have been cranking it up and I they, they basically solved all my problems like a week before I ran into them so <laughs> mad mad props and the second thing is I work for a CI tool called docker. we do everything based on docker we've recently opened opened up our API if you haven't checked this out we're worker with E R C K E R. And we're free to build apps on and test them locally and on production. <laughs>
0: that's my plug. Thank you. Nice. Thanks, Joshua. I want to plug Node School International Day. It's happening May twenty third. Basically, I don't know what's gonna be happening, but it's gonna be something exciting for for, for Node School. So that, that's coming up May twenty-third. Some upcoming events. First off, Web
3: Rebels and One Shot, which will be held May 21st, 22nd, and 23rd in Oslo. That is webrebels.org. After that comes Camp.js. I believe you organized that, right, Tim? Correct, yeah. Camp.js. May 22nd and 25th in Melbourne. That yeah. is
0: campjs.com. May 2nd, 22nd to the 25th. It's, 20 a, it's a
3: weekend second. long thing, yeah. <laughs> yes. After that, Node School International Day. What was the date again? It's May 23rd. <laughs> May 23rd. You can go to nodeschool.io international day. JSConf US is May 27th till May 29th in Amelia Island in Florida. That is 2015.jsconf.us. And finally, NodeConf Adventure. Uh, Formerly, I believe it was, it's part of NodeConf. June 11th till 14th at Walter Creek Ranch in California. That is nodeconf.com.
0: Okay, excellent. All right. I have one to add. Oh, yeah, go for it. This
2: weekend in San Francisco is the Stupid Shit No One Needs and Terrible Ideas Hackathons,
0: which you can
2: find more about at stupidhackathon.github.io.
0: And because this will probably be published later than this weekend, will this be happening again?
2: I don't know. It's a sub-stack thing. So I see.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. You can follow NodeUp on Twitter, so at NodeUp. If you'd like to sponsor NodeUp, you can email NodeUp at gmail.com. I'm Tim Oxley. You can follow me at S-E-C-O-I-F on Twitter. It's a stupid handle, I'm sorry. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye.
1: Bye! Bye.